Our scripture this evening is going to be in Jude. We're going to read verses 5 through 7. We've been working our way slowly but surely through Jude on Sunday nights. Jude uh, 5 through 7. The title I gave to this sermon is Three Instances of Divine Judgment. That's an appropriate title. I have a second appropriate title if, if, if we want it. It's maybe more appropriate to Reformation Day. Uh, and it would be The Faith That Saves Is Never Alone. The Faith That Saves Is Never Alone. And we'll, we'll get to that point uh, in the sermon. Jude 5 through 7. Uh, is going to be our text. I invite you then to hear God's holy word read for you now. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. This is God's word. Let's pray together and ask his blessing on our study of it tonight. Father in heaven, we are eager uh, to study your word together. And Lord, we must confess there are some interesting things said in your word tonight. We pray uh, that you would give this preacher grace to handle them well and correctly, and that you would help all of us to understand them and believe them, Lord, that we might serve you better in our lives in the week ahead. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. People of God, in Jude verse 3, we, as you know, receive the main instruction of the letter. There Jude tells us to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And then in verse 4, he tells us why we must contend for the faith. It's because certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality. As we turn our attention now to verses 5 through 7... Jude takes the opportunity to remind his readers of three instances of divine judgment. And the question we might ask is, why does Jude want his readers to remember and be well aware of these three instances of divine judgment? Well, I would say the answer to that question is because in these three instances of divine judgment, we're reminded of two things. We're reminded first of what happens to those who abuse God's grace. And we're reminded second about what happens to those who are sexually immoral. Remember what's going on in this letter. Certain people have crept into the church. What are these people doing? Well, they're, they're abusing God's grace, right? They're using God's grace uh, as a license to sin, but not just any sin. They're using God's grace as a license to be sexually immoral. So these people who've crept into the church are doing two things. They're abusing God's grace, and they're being sexually immoral. And so in these three instances of divine judgment, Jude reminds us of others throughout the history of the church who have abused God's grace, and also others who are sexually immoral, in order to show us that these certain people who've crept into the church unnoticed, they are false teachers. 
They are in error. And so let's just consider these three instances of divine judgment. The first two instances concern people who abuse the grace of God, and then the third instance concerns people who were sexually immoral. So the first instance is of the Israelites in the wilderness. We see this in verse 5. Jude writes, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, Jude here is speaking about something that happens in the book of Numbers. In the book of Numbers, Moses sends 12 men to spy on the land of Canaan. Ten of those men return and say, the people there are too much for us. We can't overtake them. Two of the men, Joshua and Caleb, say, no, we can overtake them with the Lord's help. Well, the people of Israel, they side with the ten who say we can't do it. And the people of Israel proceed to cry and wail and complain to the Lord and say, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. The Lord hears the Israelites grumbling and the Lord's wrath is kindled against his people. And in Numbers 14, 29, the Lord says this to the Israelites, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land I swore that I would make you dwell except Caleb and Joshua. And that's what happens in the book of Numbers. Throughout those 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, God destroys that first generation of people who grumbled against him. Now let's simply notice when Jude says these people were destroyed, Jude says they were destroyed after they were delivered from Egypt. That is, they were destroyed after they experienced something of the grace of God. Notice second, why they were destroyed? They were destroyed because of unbelief. Unbelief was their fundamental, basic, and most glaring sin. They didn't believe, they didn't trust God. So so get this right. Jude is saying these Israelites, they experienced God's grace and being delivered from Egypt, but they responded to that grace with what? They responded with sin. They responded to God's grace with grumbling and unbelief, and in the end, they were destroyed because of it. Let's just notice third who destroyed them. It's not really a part of the point that I'm making, but just notice, right? Jude says that, that it's Jesus who both saved a people out of Egypt and afterward destroyed those who didn't believe. Very interesting. Certainly we learn there that already in the Old Testament, Jesus is at work. Jesus is the Savior and the judge of the world, okay? These aren't just New Testament realities. These are Old Testament realities as well. My, my friend uh, David Murray uh, wrote a book called Jesus on Every Page, and uh, I think Jude would agree with that, right? Jude here is saying Jesus was there uh, in Numbers. In Exodus, he delivered a people out of Egypt. Afterward, he destroyed those who didn't believe. Anyway, the second instance of divine judgment that Jude sets before us is about angels. Verse 6, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Now in the 
previous example, we could point to a specific passage of Scripture that Jude was referencing. Here we don't have that same luxury. It seems that Jude is drawing on language from the apocryphal book of one Enoch. You'll sometimes hear about apocryphal books. They are books which many in the early church cited, books which many in the early church found helpful, but books which ultimately weren't included in the canon of Scripture because the church didn't believe they were inspired in the same way that the books of the Bible are. Anyway, Jude will mention the apocryphal book of one Enoch down in verse 14. So we we know that Jude was familiar with this writing, as were his readers. Anyway, in one Enoch, there is an interpretation of Genesis 6, 1 through 4. You could turn there if you want just to look at it. But in one Enoch, there is an interpretation of Genesis 6, 1 through 4, which says that the sons of God who saw that the daughters of men were attractive and took them as their wives were none other than fallen angels. All right, that's what one Enoch says. Genesis 6 tells us about sons of God finding the daughters of man attractive and taking them for their wives. One Enoch says these sons of God were fallen angels. One Enoch also says that God judged the angels because of this. So it seems, it seems That's what Jude is drawing on here. Anyway, this much is sure. These angels whom Jude is speaking about, they rebelled against God. They did not stay within their own position of authority. They left their proper dwelling, Jude says. They weren't content with being ministering spirits sent to serve those who would inherit salvation. They they wanted, they wanted more than what God had given them. And God God judged them for it. But just think about it, the angels. The angels had everything. The angels knew blessed and sweet and uninterrupted fellowship with the triune God. The angels knew God's kindness and God's goodness and God's glory better than anything else ever created. And yet these angels, the ones Jude's talking about here, they too took it for granted. They despised it. Rather than honoring God for who he was and for the kindness he showed them, these angels rebelled. And so in the first two instances of divine judgment, Jude is reminding us of what happens to those who abuse and take advantage of God's grace. In these first two instances of divine judgment, Jude is essentially saying, you want to know what happens to those who use the grace and kindness of God as a license for sin? This is what happens. They are destroyed. They are kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. The writer of Hebrews, I think, gives us a similar warning regarding the fate of those who despise the grace of God. This is what he says in Hebrews 10, 26, and 27. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but only a fearful expectation of judgment. 
If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer uh, remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. I would say Jude is making a similar point with these first two instances of divine judgment. Well, the last instance of divine judgment that Jude sets before us uh, is, is that which concerns Sodom and Gomorrah. And of course, this instance of divine judgment is concerned primarily with the sin of sexual immorality. Jude singles that out in verse 7 when he tells us that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah uh, indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. The Greek phrase translated unnatural desire literally uh, is translated other flesh. Jude is saying the people in Sodom and Gomorrah pursued other flesh, and that's that's what we call a double entendre, I think, on the part of Jude, because on the one hand, uh, the word other uh, refers to other of two, uh, and in this case then it refers to male flesh rather than female flesh. It's a reference to the men of Sodom and Gomorrah's homosexual desire. But at the same time, do you remember who those men were in Lot's house? They weren't actually men. They were angels sent from God. And so when we hear the phrase other fresh, we, we understand the full, full implications and nature of these people's sexual immorality. But, but, but Sodom and Gomorrah is a fitting example to remember. Because these certain people, these false teachers who've crept into the church have taught what? They've, they've not simply taught God's grace gives you a license to sin. They've specifically taught God's grace gives you a license to be sexually immoral. And in this example, Judah saying, wait, 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 wait. Before you buy that baloney, do you remember what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? because of their unrepentant sexual immorality. They came under the swift and severe judgment of God. Before you think sexual immorality in any form is ever okay for a Christian, Judas saying, remember Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah. They serve as an example, the text says, by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, what application can we draw from these three instances of divine judgment that Jude sets before us here? Well, the application is this. It matters how you live. It matters how you live. The false teachers crept into the church and said, guess what? It doesn't matter how you live. All that matters is that you love Jesus. If you love Jesus, you can live however you want. And Jude says, really? Really? It doesn't matter how you live? Ask the grumbling Israelites about that. Ask the rebellious angels about that. Ask the sexually immoral people of Sodom and Gomorrah about that. It matters how you live. Now that said, we dare not forget that we are nearing Reformation Day. Boys and girls, what happened on Reformation Day? I got my my kids sitting right there in about two rows. 
Jackson, you were being a funny guy this morning. You know what happened on Reformation Day? I bet you do. I just put you on the spot. That's not very nice. I knew you could handle it. That's why I did. Martin Luther, Hunter, we'll talk afterwards, all right? I, you got it, don't you, buddy? Martin Luther? 95 Theses? You're on it. Awesome. Martin Luther walked up to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. And Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the door of that church, protesting what he determined was the, was the theological malpractice of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, there were numerous gospel truths recovered at the time of the Reformation, but no doubt the most significant truth recovered at the time of the Reformation was the truth of justification by faith alone. You see, Martin Luther realized that no one could be justified by their works. No one could be justified in the sight of God by what they do. Because you see, no matter how hard we try, sin remains and sin stains everything we do, and we can never, ever, ever do enough to earn God's favor. And yet, gloriously and wonderfully, by God's grace, Luther, reading scripture, realized and recognized the good news of the gospel. And it's that in mercy, God not only forgives our sins through the blood of Jesus, he also grants to us the perfect righteousness and holiness of Jesus on the basis of faith alone. So that when we are, when we are united to Christ by faith, our sins are forgiven, and we stand before God, covered in the perfect righteousness of Jesus in such a way that it's as if we've never sinned nor been a sinner. That's what the catechism says. That's what, that's what Luther discovered. That's what we believe, right? Justification by faith alone. It's a glorious, wonderful truth. It's the foundation, and it's the bedrock of our faith. And yet Jude here, in confronting these false teachers and their lawless lifestyle and teaching is reminding us of an important aspect of justification by faith alone. And it's that although salvation is by faith alone, the faith that saves is never alone. No true and saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will always be accompanied by repentance and good works. The Belgic Confession, we said it earlier, says this. We believe that this true faith, produced in man by the hearing of God's word and by the work of the Holy Spirit, regenerates him and makes him a new man and causes him to live the new life. And again, it says, it is impossible for this holy faith to be unfruitful in a human being. That's what our confession says. It's impossible for this holy faith to be unfruitful in a human being. That's what we believe, all right? We're saved by faith alone, always and forever, hallelujah, hallelujah. But the faith that saves is never alone. This truth is illustrated wonderfully, beautifully, by the testimony of Rachel Gilson. Rachel was in a lesbian relationship until she was converted to Christ her first year of college. And 
This is what she writes in her book, Born Again This Way. I'm gonna read a fairly lengthy uh, segment of the book. I want you to try to hang with me because I think it's a beautiful testimony that makes the point of what Jude is telling us here. This is Rachel Gilson from her book, Born Again This Way. She writes, I was going to take the train down to Manhattan to visit my high school girlfriend. It was December 2005, a full year since Sylvia had confronted me about Anna. Anna was the girlfriend. A full year of growth in maturity, surely. Wasn't my spine steeled now to be friends with my ex? Our relationship had been rocky since my conversion in February 2004. I came to Christ while she and I were broken up, but two weeks later she called me. She said that ending it had been a mistake, we should get back together. It was all my heart wanted, yet I explained to her that I had become a Christian. I couldn't be with her anymore. It was so hard to resist her. Many days I longed for that old relationship again. In the summer of 2005, I tried to establish a new healthy pattern of relating to her. Perhaps I could love her like Christ, I thought. She'd experienced some hard things recently, and over the fall semester, we talked and corresponded more and more. I felt that I was in a new place with her, that our closeness was now safe, and that I was really helping her and honoring God. So that night in December, as Anita and I stood in the hallway at a campus Christmas party, and I casually told her about my plans to visit my ex-girlfriend, I expected approval. Wasn't I being a great witness? Anita's immediate direct eye contact question told me otherwise. She asked, what are you going to do if she kisses you? That's ridiculous. It won't happen, I said. But what will you do if it does, she replied. I was about to find out. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Whether I knew this specific verse, as the train pressed me toward New York, I don't recall. I do recall that as I turned Anita's question over in my head, I felt no will to fight. The train was rushing me to, to the city, but my flesh was rushing me to sin. I lost the battle on the way like an army sabotaged from the inside. I'd been a Christian for almost two years, growing in the joys of God and his community, surrounded by his gifts. I gave myself to an old lover. I can scarcely write about it without tears. I remember waking that night, watching the snow fall out the dorm window, feeling heavy for what I'd done with the girl next to me, and then choosing to do it again. There was no hiding from my sin and disobedience. I knew full well what I'd done. That night didn't teach me that sexual immorality was wrong. I'd already been convinced of that. What it did teach me is that I was more treacherous than I had previously known. And though it's a deep stain on my life of discipleship, God was able to take what I meant for evil and turn it for good. As I walked in Central Park, heavy with transgression, I seriously considered going back to my Christian community and not telling anyone what had happened. Couldn't I just keep it to myself? Surely my ex wouldn't tell. It could be my little secret. I am so thankful, Rachel says, that the Spirit did not let me take that route. 
As much as I wanted to save face, I felt turmoil about telling that lie. And when we got back to the dorm room, I called Sylvia. She was at a Christmas party. I told her everything through snotty tears. Never before or since have I heard my friend's voice so thick with sadness. She kept repeating to me, just come home. Just come back. The train ride to New Haven was an emotional confusion for me. I felt such regret over my actions, but also deep relief from having confessed my sin. I was received back with open arms. My friend shared my grief at my, excuse me, my friend shared grief at my sin, but also forgiveness and restoration. Rachel writes, perhaps you're reading this as someone who is hiding sin from your church community or who has run away from them altogether. Satan would love you to believe that you've gone too far, that there's no coming back from what you've done, but he's lying. So let me say to you what Sylvia said to me, come back, come home. Forgiveness and restoration are waiting for you in the arms of Christ. End quote. To that I would say with her, indeed there is. She's absolutely, wondrously, gloriously correct. There is always forgiveness and restoration for sinners in Christ. But let's all notice what Rachel did. Rachel came home. She failed miserably. The whole episode was, in her own words, a deep stain on her life of discipleship. We all have them. But Rachel didn't continue in her sin. Rachel didn't try to baptize her sin and her lesbian relationship in Christian colors, as many were doing in Jude's day, and many do in our day and in our own denomination. No, Rachel came home. She came back. She confessed her sin, and she turned away from it. She repented of it through faith in Jesus. We're saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. Christ won't let it remain alone. As Rachel shows us, true, justifying faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is accompanied by repentance and a renewed obedience to that same Jesus Christ. It matters how you live. Those who profess Christ but then despise the grace of God by living in unrepentance and unbelief and sexual immorality will come under the judgment of God for their sins. Salvation is by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. True faith in Christ, saving faith in Christ will be marked by humility, by repentance, by a desire to do God's by a coming home. Let's pray. Our great and awesome God, we give you thanks and praise for your mercy in the gospel. Your mercy which rescues sinners like Rachel and sinners like me and sinners like all of the people sitting in this sanctuary. 
Father, we praise you for your mercy. We praise you for your grace. Help us, Lord, to receive it as we ought and to respond to it as we ought with humble repentance, with gratitude to Jesus for all that he's done for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.